Welcome, Austin and Jim. Thought we'd talk a little bit today about the uh, U.S. Navy and its uh, the number of ships it has. Uh, there have been a number of changes going on. The the number of aircraft carriers have been changing. The uh, number of um, other ship types have have been changing, and there have been some new ship types introduced, like the uh, littoral classes, like the independence class. Austin, what is the right size for the U.S. Navy? Well, first thing you got to ask and answer, and you don't have to answer it perfectly, but you have to come up with with a with a good answer, good enough to provide guidance that will shape at a minimum your next five to ten years of naval uh, construction and equipment budgets. But also looking even beyond that into um, two decades, I mean, 25 years, uh, because of the complexity and size of, 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 of maritime combat systems. Um, to say that instead of Navy, I'm not trying to you know, play jargon with it, but there's an entire range of, of weapons and weapon systems that you don't associate with ships, hulls, subs, surface ships, and, and the like, that actually contribute a great deal to uh, naval operations, not even, uh, not, not just uh, surveillance or communications, but uh, even uh, combat capabilities. Now, we did a strategy talk a long time ago where one of the things Jim brought up mines, how sea mines don't get any respect. And it was uh, it was taking it from something that we had on strategy page, but also something that showed up in, in, in how to make war. But that's what I mean, Dan, before I, I start on this, that what do you want your Navy to do, is that you have to look at the entire uh, of uh, technological capabilities, understand how they can be integrated and organized, and you can have the, have you know the same systems, but you organize them differently, and you get uh, a different, uh, not entirely different capabilities, but a, a different expression of those ca uh, ca capabilities to meet uh, uh, mission requirements, and that is. Um, and let me give you another example before I go to say, what do you want us to do? The U.S. Navy deploys um, underwater uh, surveillance devices to track, you know, from the Cold War, uh, it was to you know, track Russian uh, submarines. But it can do other things as well, and it enhances the effectiveness of American uh, attack subs, uh, the safety of American uh, ballistic missile uh, submarines, and when you connect it in where we have multiple platforms, I'm going to say platforms, and I think that's a better word when you think about it. That's the way the F-35 guys like to talk about it, because we just had an article on strategy page uh, just this past week. Oh, oh well, uh, F-35s can uh, guide in uh, MLRS um, and essentially turning a, a longer-range MLRS into a, <laughs> an aircraft-delivered. It's not. The F-35 is guiding it. You can do some things similar uh, under the sea, on the sea, uh, and above the sea and in uh, 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 littoral areas. Now, stepping back from that and understanding, in other words, you've got a lot of uh, options out there. You've only got so much money. You've also, and this is something else I'm going to cue Jim because it's always interesting when he will talk about this. You've also got, uh, I guess I would call, call it uh, churches within sex within the Navy on who's can do what. Similar to where the Air Force would fight over between bombers and and and, and fighters, and uh, the uh, the Navy, you've got your surface uh, action uh, element, then the naval air, and then the uh, submarines. But nevertheless, you have to 
as a, a, the job of senior U.S. Department of Defense leadership, senior Navy leaders, is to integrate capabilities. And ultimately, the real job is to protect the United States uh, from attack and also protect U.S. interests, which leads to back what I said, what do you want the U.S. Navy to do? <clears throat> now, the thing is, the United States wants the U.S. Navy to be, do, be able to do everything. And line that shows up, why didn't the Navy do this? Or we don't have enough to cover this. Or look what's going on in, well, we'll talk about the South China Sea. We talk about it all the time because that is, in, in my view, one of the... <laughs> One of the three more uh, likely maritime conflict zones, it may be the one that is the most dangerous, but you can't uh, rule out Baltic Norway and you can't rule out East China Sea, you know, in other words, uh, Japan, um, um, South, South Korea. Uh, you still can't rule out Straits of Hormuz, even though that would, uh, that's really a different, uh, different kind of uh, – of uh, uh, potential clash is that if you want the Navy to do everything, then you've got to have multi-purpose uh, ships. Say that as that can uh, conduct patrols and project power and projecting power either from just a show of force showing the flag to running freedom of navigation operations, FONOPS. We, we've talked about that on, on uh, Strategy Talk did a couple of years ago after an American uh, guided missile destroyer raced past one of those uh, fake islands that the Chinese have made in the South China Sea, and there was an incident. Uh, there was a recent incident, too, with a, a Chinese uh, uh, People's Liberation Army Navy uh, vessel uh, coming within, I think it was about... Um, 60 feet, 70 feet of an American uh, uh, naval uh, vessel in what we regard as open seas. And the Chinese now, after building the fake islands, claim it's just as much sovereign Chinese territory as Shanghai is. Uh, that's one of the things we want, freedom of navigation, because the United States supports uh, free and secure international trade put down piracy. We have rules, too, that guide what is uh, a maritime boundary. How far out your actual authority, a nation's uh, actual authority, goes into the water. And then we've also got agreements governing what are, you know, the EEZ's exclusive econ uh, economic zones. Uh, at some point, the United States wants Navy and our Coast Guard you know, and the Coast Guard being much more oriented to North America, not exclusively, but for the most part, North uh, uh, North, North America, to protect uh, the uh, natural resources that belong to the United States and its allies and these exclusive uh, economic, uh, economic zones to make sure that they're uh, secure enough that a would-be regional hegemon Russia, China, just to name uh, two, uh, wouldn't make a grab to uh, uh, grab uh, a maritime zone. Now, would that happen? Well, it's it's happening in the South China Sea. So let's just put it up, and then we want a uh, a navy that is capable of fighting a near peer in uh, an extended uh, navy war. Well, it's not just going to be on, uh, on, uh, on the sea, but that would be the primary instrument in a sea, in a sea zone. At least it would, especially if you're a expeditionary power like the United States. Now, with China, and we've talked about this too, China has developed uh, operations, and they are, they're complex uh, super operations designed to deny the U.S. Navy access to uh, water 
uh, near the uh, East Asian coast, primarily Chinese coast, but also to keep the United States even out of the South China Sea. And they're not all naval platforms. Ballistic missiles. Jim, what is that? The DF-21? I think, isn't that, isn't that the name yeah. of that? Okay, all right. I, I, well, I just bring that up as an example system that has uh, uh, maritime warfare capability, or, or supposed supposed to have it, that's uh, fired on land and aimed at uh, you know, supposedly is the anti anti carrier missile. Well, then we're going to want the Navy to have the ability to operate in a threat area where you could conceivably a high value ship like an aircraft carrier could be struck by essentially an IRBM that has a very precise and maneuverable uh, uh, warhead. Uh, So we're going to have to put anti-missile missile capabilities and not just short range. Of course, we've already done that. Uh, the, the Navy's got, I think, 33 ships right now that are ballistic missile defense ships carrying uh, a, a various uh, type of, of standard uh, the, the standard threes, even though there's some standard twos that have uh, a, a ABM uh, capability. Uh, so you're going to have to have that. You're going to have to have holes that uh, can carry, take, uh, handle the target acquisition sensor and surveillance uh, acquisition uh, uh, capability and also carry the missiles. You're also going to have to have ships eventually as we start and where Navy's already deployed test examples of this is uh, we're, we're moving to beam weapons. Now beam weapons may answer both an anti-air and anti-missile threat in the uh, high threat area. So what you're looking at is put a mix of ships that complement each other. The fancy word synergy, but let's just go ahead and use it. It's complement. Uh, think of it as grand maritime combined arms, except it's, uh, that's, uh, that's just one, one way uh, to, uh, to express it. And so it's not simply a number of ships. There is uh, a decision to be made about types of ships, but this is something else we pointed out on strategy page. And heck, there's a couple of good articles on this and in, in some of the, uh, the defense literature of the last I've read within the, the last couple of months on the nomenclature of, uh, of contemporary ships. The uh, Zumwalt, is as, as big as a World War II heavy cruiser. And it's still classified as a destroyer, uh, even though it also looks like something out of Jules Verne's <laughs> uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, it's, it, it's very large I mean, uh, in, uh, compared to some uh, other sur- surface ships, and it really isn't a destroyer. Well, what is it? If you go in and you start looking at also at, at shared capabilities, which is another way, or similar capabilities, you find out that, that some smaller ships actually have some of the system fight in a, in a high threat, uh, fight a naval war in a high threat area. I'm not leaving subs out. I th- I'm going to take the bet that the U.S. Navy and Royal Navy, or the, and, but primarily U.S. Navy of the size of it, are, are the best at integrating attack subs into fleet operations. And they're not only uh, surveillance and sensors out, out there, scouts, they're capable of, of providing very extensive defense for uh, a, a, an American fleet. Now, I've laid, I've laid out the requirements and have been specific in some areas because I'm, I know that the missile threat is real. It's not just a ballistic missile threat because hypersonic cruise missiles from 
aircraft or even fired from some of those artificial islands. You, uh, you come into the South China Sea on the surface, you're in a, a, a crossfire. Uh, thing is, oh, the Chinese are also in a crossfire. Uh, if coming into, uh, uh, if you find a uh, uh, naval battle in that uh, in that zone, the <coughs> they're laying out the specific capabilities, sketching some other capabilities required. You still come down to a question of the number of hulls because of the size of the world, and it seems. But 250 ships isn't going to cut it because you've always got the regeneration cycle, training, maintenance, and deployment, and then stand down. And that's the rule of three. So if 250 doesn't work, 225, does 300 work? Unless you get into some of the operations research. uh, analysis, but it's also judgment. It's not just opinion. It's it's best judgment. It's you might be able, might in many places be able to uh, support uh, both American diplomatic, American diplomatic, and uh, military security. Uh, objectives with a small ship in the right place. And I might, I know you can, and I can think of several scenarios where a a littoral combat ship uh, is more than enough because it's, it's present is there and it can bring everything else if, uh, if it had to. So, this, the argument that everything must be "quote unquote" high end, meaning the do-it-all kind of, sh- of, of uh, ship, I don't buy because I know some less capable, but still provided with outstanding communications capability and drones uh, can fulfill, provide a lot of the capabilities that American. Uh, maritime policy needs. So somewhere, somewhere above 320, I think is the number. I know what's the uh, number they're aiming at, uh, that we're t- that we're talking about deploying now, Jim. 360 or something like that. Yeah, they varies up, it varies between 3 you know, 20 and then 355, 360. All right, so I'll shut up now uh, uh, and let, let Jim respond to it. So, yeah, Jim, what are your your thoughts on this? Well, first, what kind of war are you thinking of? You know, you might get into. Uh, we're focused on China, which is basically the only hostile fleet we have to worry about. North Korea and Iran, uh, they don't really have, you know, a, a high seas fleet. They have coastal fleets. Um, and in both cases, they're decrepit. You know, they haven't been able to buy or build new ships, uh, or very few of them. And uh, so they are not a major threat. A major threat is China. China has... The, probably the best uh, shipbuilding uh, capability in the world right now. Now, uh, that is an outrageous statement, but look at performance. Uh, they are churning out new classes of destroyers on a regular basis. Uh, they have essentially you know, replaced their Cold War fleet, which was basically a Russian knockoff, um, entirely in the last 20 years. Uh, and they're basing their ship designs on, on Western, American actually, uh, basically Western models. Um, and their ships are at sea a lot. That makes a big difference. After 2000, uh, China, you know, was building some new ships, but suddenly we were seeing them at sea a lot. And they were accidents. You know, they lost one submarine because somebody hit the wrong valve and, and the whole crew, you know, died of asphyxiation. Uh, they've had their share of collisions and ships running aground and what have you. But they understood the importance of ships are not the key factor. The crews are. And if the crews uh, are not trained, if they're not experienced 
if they don't know how to handle their ships on a regular basis, they're not much good. Now, we've seen that in the past. Uh, and the and the British Royal Navy, you know, th- uh, three centuries ago, you know, demonstrated that uh, they were able to uh, bear the expense of keeping those wooden ships at sea for long periods of time. And when it came to war, the Napoleonic Wars, uh, ship for ship, uh, the British were much superior. Plus, their officers were basically accustomed to moving ships around in different weather and different battle conditions. Uh, they basically outfought the uh, the enemy. On paper, the enemies, especially the French and the Spanish fleets, you know, were equal to or larger. But it was the quality of the crews, the officers and the and the sailors. Uh, that is a that is a tradition the U.S. Navy carried on after World War Two, because up until World War Two, it, uh, at, the, at the start of the, the 20th century, the U.S. Uh, actually started building the first dreadnought, the modern battleship. You know, this is a minor point, in fact. But the British built theirs faster, so they became known as dreadnoughts and not Michigans. Uh, the, uh, you know, so the United States was on the ball, as it were, as far as new uh, naval technology uh, went. And uh, we were at the forefront of developing aircraft carriers, uh, modern, you know, submarines. And, of course, <laughs> to we pioneered the uh, development of nuclear submarines. The Russians tried to compete, but they couldn't. The big problem was they didn't have the industrial base. They didn't have the factories and the personnel, most importantly, because it was a Canadian economy. They had no entrepreneurs. That was a you know crime against the state. Uh, and basically everybody was waiting around for somebody to give them orders. That does not build decent warships, and the Russians are still suffering from that. Chinese, on the other hand, they basically, uh, you know, uh, created the, uh, how should I put it, a communist police state without the command economy, which is basically what Nazi Germany was, you know, democratic social, uh, what do you call it, radical socialist, uh, with allowing, you know, entrepreneurship. And that made an enormous difference because their firms could compete, they had to compete uh, on a global scale. And they acquired the skills, the, the construction skills, that the Russians never did. So they're turning out fairly uh, good quality uh, ships. Now, they haven't caught up with this in all categories, and they, and they don't expect to for another 20 years. But they plan in the long term. They don't expect to be a, how should I put it, a global competitor for American military power uh, until 2030s, uh, you know, 2040. So they're talking, you know, 20 years out before they are able to match us. That still, uh, that still you know, ignores the main question. Uh, a government like China, like Nazi Germany, was highly dependent upon keeping keep people happy. You know, the, uh, you know, people don't understand this with the Nazis. During World War II, they kept producing a lot of consumer goods. You know, the Russians, of course, boom, stopped it. Well, there weren't many consumer goods in Russia, in communist World War II to begin with. But the uh, they didn't really mobilize industry for all-out war until 1943. Uh, and that was for political considerations. Hitler knew that he did not have, you know, how should I put the support of the people uh, if they were going to be uh, greatly deprived. And he was right. Uh, granted, the troops, you know, they fought. Uh, but they ran out they ran out of you know military capabilities uh, even with the uh, the mobilization in 1943 but they had to have you know the popular support as it were the Chinese have the same problem they have popular support as long as the economy keeps growing as long as you know people feel they are getting rich and they are I mean they have they basically uh, are, are the major uh, how should I put it force behind you know reducing uh, abject poverty in the world over the last 30 years because they basically eliminated it. Well, they, they greatly reduced it. You still have about 10, you know, 15% of the uh, Chinese population are living in under very poor conditions. But they basically brought, you know, in, in two generations, uh, most Chinese into a level of economic prosperity they had never seen before, they had never experienced before. Now, this the Chinese understand is dangerous because you can give 
but if you take away, you're in big trouble. You lose that support real quick. And the Chinese need a lot of support if they're going to undergo a major war, which the Chinese people, they talk about it. I mean, the government talks about it. They had the officers are allowed to write books about the next enemy. They were doing this back in the 1990s, positing how a war with the United States, they were very explicit, you know, would, would, uh, would go. And it was a lot of fancy, you know, how should I put it, uh, fanciful, imaginative uh, flag-waving. But it was quite popular because everybody was getting rich, uh, the military was finally modernizing, and uh, that plays well. You know, people like that, especially when they, they look at the map and they realize that unless China has sea access, which they never needed before, um, uh, this prosperity will not continue. Uh, so they need, they, they, they back the expansion of the fleet, but they don't really want a war. You know, it's basically a game of bluff. Uh, if anybody actually uses the major, uh, and starts a shooting war, it's all over. Uh, the prosperity is gone. And then, of course, you know, they're, they're, we're talking about two uh, superpowers who have nuclear weapons. Um, and this does not, you know, play well in China because they basically, uh, you know, in the, in the last 20 years, they ended two centuries of disasters, you know, political, military, economic. I mean, it was just a nightmare. And this plays well in China. Because, you know, it was, it was basically the idea that, you know, the Communist Party has finally brought, you know, China into the sun. Because this sounds like, you know, I want to start a World War One with the Germans demanding their place in the sun. You know, they were the new ascended power. Well, now it's, you know, China. Um, and for the same reason that, that Germany was a threat, so are, are, the, uh, are the, the Chinese. Because once you have... The instrument, as it were, once you have you know capable weapons and, and capable troops handling them, there's a temptation to use them. And for an aggressive country, you know, like China is now, this is dangerous. You know, one advantage the Americans have always had, and it gets taken for granted by our allies, is that we are basically an anti-war nation. Now, you know, a lot of Americans say, "Oh, that's ridiculous." Well, no, it isn't. Look at the United States compared to you know everybody else. Uh, the 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 United States is populated largely by people fleeing other countries that were constantly at war, that were run by dictatorships or, you know, basically inefficient governments. Um, and if you look at American history, anytime we got into a war, it, any enthusiasm for the war evaporates after three years. Any war. Uh, even World War II. I mean, they, you know, again, we... we it's a shame they don't teach history, you know, like they used to, you know, 50 years ago. Um, but you got into some of the details of what went on after World War II with the, uh, with the politicians and the tremendous pressure to get the troops home and demobilize. You know, we had like 12 million people in uniform and the American public was going to vote against any politician that didn't get them home at all cost, at all speed. Uh, that was the main reason for using the uh, the nuclear weapons against Japan. Although the Japanese tend to forget that if we hadn't done that, millions of Japanese would have starved to death and or died in, during an invasion. Uh, you know, the, without and there was no way to force the Japanese to surrender without a weapon. I mean, the nu two nuclear bombs did less damage than a lot of the firebomb rounds, uh, but it was the shock. Oh my God! Look, that's a few. One bomb did that. And even then, the Japanese military, who had been running the country, you know, since the uh, 1920s and 30s, um, uh, wanted to fight on. Uh, you know, so again, that gets forgotten. But you cannot forget things like that because it happened again. The Chinese have real problems with having a navy that is scary enough, you know, to basically, you know, make other countries feel, well, maybe we better not mess with these guys. But for a major war... Uh, that is immaterial because any war that would basically shut down the Chinese economy would make any support for China, you know, evaporate very quickly and be the ultimate in self-destructive moves. Now, given that, China has basically built a navy that can dominate in, how should I put it, small wars, you know, uh, crises that look like a war, but don't quite get there. There might be shooting, 
but nobody's going to declare a war. They cannot afford a major war, you know, militarily and politically and economically. But their navy is getting larger, and it's basically like, how should I put it? You know, mine's bigger than yours. Uh, but mine's bigger. And they were, they were very much encouraged by those uh, three droid uh, collisions that the uh, U.S. experienced over the last two years, um, which were basically uh, uh, attributed to poor, you know, leadership. Uh, you know, the crews were being pushed, maintenance wasn't being done, training wasn't being done. Uh, you know, once they looked into that, uh, it revealed a lot of problems that the U.S. Navy was having uh, that weren't being attended to. Now, at least they're, we know about them. They're out there, and they are being attended to, but it's a, it takes a while to turn that around. But the point is that Chinese... Uh, don't know uh, in, in, in terms of a intimidation Navy, which is what they're talking about. Uh, what they have to worry about is not just the United States, but South Korea and Japan. They are the you know next. They are together a larger naval threat than China. I mean you know na- the large naval force in terms of ships, uh, quality of crews, uh, weapons, and what have you. Um, and we tend to forget that. During the Cold War, you know, it wasn't just the U.S. Navy you had to calculate. It was navies because if there was a major war with Russia, it was going to be the NATO alliance versus basically Russia and some subject, subject country satellites, you know, who we, they called allies but really weren't, were as likely to revolt against Russia as to aid them, uh, whereas the NATO allies were basically united in defending themselves. Uh, China has no allies. China is in the same uh, situation as Russia. Technically, Russia is an ally, but the Russian Navy continues to fall apart. I mean, you know, there's new, there's fresh news daily. Uh, their their only aircraft carrier just had a major catastrophe when the uh, the dry dock up was in. You know, uh, sank basically. Uh, that sounds weird, but you know, things happen, especially in Russia. The uh, so the Russian fleet is a non-entity. Um, and there is no other naval ally they have. It's all, Russia all by themselves. So they had have to basically face South Korea and Japan, who have a high seas fleet. The Australians have a fairly significant fleet, not as large as the South Koreans and the Japanese, but it's a modern fleet. Uh, there are several other countries out East Asia who are building, uh, you know, modern fleets, and it all adds up. You know, when you add up all the numbers, how much naval force the United States can afford to put in the in the Far East at any given time. As Austin pointed out, the rule of three, you know, your ships, you only get a third of them, you know, overseas, uh, on, you know, on station, as it were, at one time, because the others have to go through maintenance, training, uh, and some of the maintenance goes on for, you know, a year. Um, uh, so it's only the it's the rule of thirds. The, uh, uh, the Chinese are still basically a coastal, you know, fleet. They're taking over, and uh, they're trying, and they're pretty successful taking over the South China Sea and building uh, mini aircraft carriers. You know, these airstrips on on the outer artificial islands, uh, and they're doing that at great expense to themselves. Not just in terms of money, but in terms of of diplomatic. You know, capital. Uh, they're 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 basically proving to their neighbors that they are the, the bully in town. Yeah, you know, used to be the Japanese for a while, a short while actually, uh, but now China's back, big and bad, and pushing the neighbors around. And that, I mean, they pay for that because they basically, like Russia, they have no allies. Everybody, even though Russia has you know has countries that it can basically call on to vote for them, with them in the UN. Uh, or, or not make public, you know, uh, disputes, uh, public, you know, protests about some uh, new, uh, uh, how should I put it, uh, violation of international law the Chinese commit. Um, they can't depend upon them if it comes to a, a war. If it comes to a war, everybody's going to line up with, you know, uh, United States because the United States, A, is not an imperial power. Uh, you know, the lesson of Philippines noticed uh, because Philippines was the only American colony as, as it could because of the uh, the, the uh, Spanish-American War in, in 90, 1898. Uh, but we had promised the uh, the Filipinos they get they get their freedom in 45. The Japanese inter that was delayed one year. 
uh, and you know they were free, uh, and that made an impression. You know, the Americans come out to uh, your know, propaganda aside, uh, both from inside the United States and outside the United States. The United States uh, will, cannot and will not sustain any imperial ambitions, um, and uh, that is in contrast to China. Which has, is redefining, you know, Chinese traditional Chinese territory to include more and more of East Asia, um, and that scares the heck out of you know most most of the Chinese neighbors. So when you look at naval capability and you look at basing, you've got all these neighbor these neighbors of of, uh, of China are more willing to accept U.S. naval ships. And or allow them to base there than they are Chinese ships. The Chinese have to basically build their own ports uh, to sustain overseas operations. Um, so yes, the Chinese are becoming a threat, but it's a brittle weapon. At the same time, the United States has another problem. We, we are, as the old saying goes, we have met the enemy and they are us. The, the chief agent of the uh, the weakening, as it were, of the U.S. fleet is. What you know, uh, President Eisenhower described as the milita- military-industrial complex. Well, actually, it was a military-industrial complex, but he was a retiring president and a politician, so he didn't feel he didn't have to say that. But it, it turns out that one of the biggest obstacles uh, to the uh, to building better ships and getting you know your bang for your buck, as it were, is the corruption between the, the Congress. And, and the and the major you know companies that provide uh, the warships basically it's become unprofitable to do business with the U.S. Navy unless you're connected. In other words, unless you have enough political support to keep a inefficient shipyard or you know uh, manufacturing operation open, uh, you know, a lot of companies simply do not want to do business with the Department of Defense. Uh, it's it's uh, you know one of the big deal, deals if you want to build expand the fleet to 320 ships is for Congress to make a great sacrifice and to allow multi-year contracts because normally con- the Congress wants to sign off on military spending every year so they can get maximum political leverage out of it. Um, not to mention some economic leverage, but let's not go into that. The so you know uh, you have a industrial, you know, congressional complex, which basically is inefficient. Uh, and, the, and of course, China doesn't have that yet given time because they're, they're historically, their uh, military uh, the, the, uh, you know, budget is, is legendary. I mean, literally, and goes back a lot longer. And they are aware of that. Anyway, the, so the problem we have with the U.S. Navy is uh, because of this, this corruption problem, this military industrial congressional complex, we can't, we haven't not been able to design new ships. Examples are the, you know, the Seawolf submarine, you know, overpriced. Uh, basically, we, we, have, we, have, we have tried to design and failed uh, the Seawolf submarine, the Zumwalt destroyer, um, the littoral combat ship, uh, and, uh, and of course, the new carrier. Uh, the, the replacement for the Nimitz is, uh, and this is, you know, this, you look at this and you say, how can it be so stupid? But that's what happens when you have, you know, uh, politics and, and crony capitalism, you know, all coming together uh, and, and affecting public relations departments in, among the, in the companies uh, uh, and spinning all sorts of, you know, fables. And then ships get out to sea, they say, oh my God, it doesn't work. How could that possibly happen? But the Navy, the big problem is, with the electromagnetic uh, catapult, which sounds like a hey, that sounds like a bright idea, but it was totally mismanaged the design of it, and it, it not only is less reliable, it's not as effective as was Thomas. You know, surprise, surprise, that's nothing new in military procurement. But uh, if one of the three catapults fails, they all fail, uh, and they're trying to fix that because without that, you haven't. They basically they crunch the numbers and. Ford is less effective as an aircraft carrier than the older design. And now we reported on this in strategy page, and there's been some, you know, coverage in the media, uh, but it's not the sort of thing to make for riveting, you know, journalism. Uh, but as a practical matter, it means uh, carrier fleet is in big trouble because we have a new design which hasn't been debugged. 
It won't work yet. We already have one ship built. There's another under construction, and it's unclear if they're going to fix this or not because they weren't able to fix problems they encountered with the littoral combat ship, with the Zumwalt, uh, and with the and with the Seawolf. Uh, now we were able to recover, but that's an expensive way to recover. You got this huge billions of dollars of wasted, years wasted, and what have you. All sorts of embarrassing you know, publicity, which is even uh, a bigger uh, pain, as it were, to the uh, guilty parties involved. Um, but it means you know ships aren't being built. Uh, you know, uh, you know the, uh, the the military budget, uh, huge chunks of it are being wasted. Uh, and here we are, you know, and we've been doing this, you know, for about, about 30 years now. Uh, the ineffective shipbuilding um, and the and the shipyards that can't build ships even when they have a decent design to work with. Uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure to fix it, but there's still a lot of, how should I put it, uh, quiet pushback, quiet but effective pushback. Uh, because, you know, when you run into somebody else's, you know, as the Chinese say, iron rice bowl, their entitlement, as it were, uh, you know, the politicians are going to go, you know, basically support who pays them. Um, and when I'm talking about the voters, uh, and, and, you know, that, that, that is, again, it's something that doesn't make riveting journalism. So again, there are stories about it. Uh, and so it's not like it's a top secret, but it's a real factor. And if you look at the American fleet and the inability to build new, you know, warships, uh, that is a major factor. It cannot be ignored. Uh, you know, anytime the Navy says we're, we have a new design, you know, most experienced people experiencing in naval, you know, modern naval history get nervous. They say, oh, my God, you know, they're going to ruin another class of ships. Um, so this our problems are prim- primarily, uh, you know, people, uh, both the uh, the poor training, you know, the, the cutting the maintenance budgets and what have you on the ships and making them less effective and dangerous to the crews, as we discovered with those collisions, um, but also unable to design and build you know, new ships to replace the ones that are wearing out. Um, and this is a problem that you know, really doesn't, a lot of people in Washington don't like to discuss openly. Uh, and it has to be whispered about. Uh, but whispering doesn't often doesn't get the solutions. And that's the big problem we're up against. The Chinese, again, they're becoming a major factor. They have new weapons. Uh, they, they have they have the ability to do things that uh, we can do things too. But in electronic, you know, uh, network warfare, uh, which may be decisive in the next war. Um, but they are still a coastal fleet, basically. I mean, they, they can go out, you know, halfway into the Pacific. I mean, yeah, they've sent ships around on cruises around the world to show the flag. Uh, but that's mainly for propaganda purposes. As far as moving a fleet, uh, they couldn't go as far as the Japanese fleet could in, in, in the opening uh, period of World War II. And they're not really looking for that. They want a fleet that can dominate you know, their, you know, their, their expanded definition of what is uh, you know, greater China, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the kingdom under the, the heavens, as it were, uh, in Chinese. Um, and uh, we have to go halfway around the world, you know, across the Pacific uh, to confront that. Whereas for them, you know, it's just defending their borders, which I've now extended to the Straits of Malacca and the Indian Ocean. So right now, Jim, we only have 10 aircraft carriers, 11 aircraft carriers uh, when the, the next one's finished. Uh and with the sort of this rule of three, that means that we really can only put about four aircraft carriers out at one time, which doesn't give us a lot of coverage. Is is that one area where we we need to build more platforms? Well, you can if you have if you had the carriers are well maintained, <coughs> which they, the the ships have not been. I mean, basically been uh, during uh, you know uh, the you know how should I put after two thousand four or 2008, um, the, the military budget cut because you can declare war over in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, which wasn't the case, but that's another problem. Um, and the budgets, you know, started to shrink. And the Navy was still being called on to keep a lot of ships out there. And they did that by cutting maintenance and training. Uh, they basically, you can, you, if you have those 11, 10 carriers, you can put six of them out there. But it means 
a lot more of the crew not going to re-enlist. They're not going to stay in because, you know, it's bad enough being away from your family for six months at a time. But to find yourself extended, you know, to eight, nine, eight or nine months or to come back only for two or three months and then bingo to be off on another six-month cruise. This made it very difficult for the Navy to hang on to, you know, its, its, its experienced people. And that's a consideration uh, because we are not at war. Um, so, no, you can surge uh, periods, you know, for up to a year or whatever. But eventually – those ships are not going to be operational, and you've got to put it into a port, whether it be in the in the in, in the West Pacific, in Japan, or South Korea, or whatever, and undergo maintenance, or they're just going to be breaking down there. You're going to have to be go out there and tow them back. Uh, so no, I mean, you know, normally, if you want to maintain that surgeability, you want to obey the rule of threes and keep maintenance up to date, uh, and that means you know you. Normally, you're only going to get three or four carriers out there, which is what they're trying to do now. Um, and uh, that's why one reason why they're so eager to get the uh, F-35B, the vertical takeoff version, uh, which goes out on the, uh, the amphibious carriers. You know, actually, we have 20 carriers if you count the large uh, you know, amphibious ships, uh, which, carry, which look like small aircraft carriers. Uh, but they can carry half a dozen or more of these F-36Bs uh, with smart bombs. This gives you a tremendous uh, naval uh, air capability, uh, you know, at a very low you know, price, as it were. Um, but, you know, uh, while that's adequate for counterterrorism and, you know, uh, operations and, and such, uh, it's not enough to really, you know, confront you know, the Chinese in a major way. But right now, the war with China, the naval war with China, is a war of intimidation. You know, mine's better than yours. I, I got more, I got, you know, they look spiffier and what have you. You're, you're basically displaying your, you know, it's like, it's like mating season in a, in a, in a you know, in a, in, a, in a deer herd. You know, whoever's got the biggest and most impressive looking antlers, whether or not that particular, you know, buck can fight, um, is going to, you know, win the ladies and, and you know, win the fight, as it were. Uh, in this case, it's fighting for, you know, public opinion in China as well as among, you know, the neighbors. Uh, and uh, right now they're winning. I mean, they are churning out ships like there's no tomorrow. And it's very impressive. I mean, they built their latest aircraft carrier, um, which is somewhat between halfway between you know, one of our amphibious carriers and one of our Nimitzes, but from start to finish, three years. Yeah, Actually, the actual construction, too. We have not been, we could, there was a time when we could do that, but we can't do it anymore because there's so much, how should I put it, uh, uh, things that have to be done and taken care of. Um, and even then, when the ship is, is finished, uh, will it work? The Chinese ships worked. Right. Uh, they're talking about electromagnetic, you know, catapults. They're waiting for us to perfect the technology, then they'll steal it. I mean, they can't say that, but that's what they do. Um, and so we're paying the price. We're being first. Uh, Austin, we're almost out of time. Do you have anything to add as we wrap this up? Yeah, I was going to come back uh, and make, make two quick points. As Jim points out, one of the standards to that right now and for the next couple of decades, uh, we the U.S. has to measure itself and its uh, maritime warfare capabilities against is what China could do, can do. Jim correctly differentiates is that really what they will do, given the larger issues they struggle with uh, domestically, uh, both economically and, um, and 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 socially. And, and bring this back to operational and, and really tactical to show you why you do why you do need a certain quantity of uh, of, of ships. Um, I want to say maybe it was probably thirteen or fourteen years ago. I read uh, a article in a defense publication where you had a littoral combat type ship that was in uh, uh, confined, semi-confined waters, but was protecting itself with drones and uh, 
uh, unmanned uh, sub submersibles uh, out uh, to uh, stop uh, torpedoes and uh, and the like. And it was it was the uh, hi as I'm the uh, ship as a sensor platform and all of these. Uh, robots and drones and unmanned uh, systems are really just an extension of the uh, my, my deck space. And uh, <clears throat> here's the problem with that: it's it's there's some truth to it, can be, but all you got to do is the brain if that little littoral combat like ship is hit, uh, knock it out and. Sure, there's some of the semi-autonomous systems uh, <clears throat> may be up by another uh, U.S. Uh, ship to uh, operate. Who knows what some of the autonom uh, uh, fully autonomous systems would be doing. But you've won the sea battle. Uh, things get more complicated at the instant that you have a second much less a third ship there. And that's one of the reasons that when we really move uh, a carrier task force in, uh, in a power projection, an offensive situation, we move two because that really complicates our adversaries. Uh, it complicates the problem for our adversaries to have two of them. That's a heck of a lot of money. That's a heck of a lot of gambling. What you say? We got eleven, and I'm saying when we really go in, uh, into an attack, twenty percent, right at twenty percent of our elite carriers are involved in this operation. Yeah. So you need a you need a certain number uh, of hulls. I don't know what the magic number is, but at least I think this morning we've laid out a lot of the considerations. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up there, and uh, we'll talk to you gentlemen next time. Bye, guys. Bye. Take care.